American businessman Lou Pearlman created some of the biggest boy bands in the 1990s, including NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, O-Town, and LFO to name a few. Lou even called himself the sixth Backstreet Boy. These bands were performing to sold-out concerts while selling merch and hundreds of millions of albums to screaming fans around the world. It was estimated that Lou Pearlman's peak net worth was $300 million during the boy band craze era of the 1990s and early 2000s. So how did Lou end up $300 million in debt in 2006 and sentenced to 25 years of prison in 2008? Find out this and lots of other random boy band trivia today on the Controversial Figures podcast. Welcome to Controversial Figures, a podcast about intriguing figures in the media. My name is Tammy Hawkins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a rating and comment in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Donating to Controversial Figures on Patreon helps me as an independent podcaster to continue bringing new content. After you donate, I'll give you a shout out on a future show. And I'll send along occasional swag to regular donors, as you are the producers of my show. It also really, really helps when you subscribe to the show, and also when you tell your friends to do so. We're getting really close to almost 3,000 downloads, and it would mean the world to me if you would maybe, you know, recommend this podcast to a couple of your friends and help them hit that subscribe button. All right, now let's get to the sordid tale of the sixth Backstreet Boy. Lou Pearlman was born in 1954 and raised in Flushing, New York. As a child, Lou lived at Mitchell Garden's apartment, which was located across from the Flushing Airport. Lou said as a child he would spend hours outside, watching blimps take off and land at the airport. He said it was basically his playground growing up. According to Lou's autobiography, titled Bands, Brands, and Billions, It was during this period that he used his position on his school newspaper to earn press pass credentials and get his first ride in a blimp. This is disputed by his childhood friend, Alan Gross, who claims he, Alan, was the school reporter and he allowed Lou Perlman to tag along. This is your first hint that Lou has a loose relationship with the truth. One thing that is known to be true is that Lou Pearlman happened to be the first cousin of Art Garfunkel. His cousin's fame and wealth inspired Lou's own interest in the music business. As a teenager, Lou had managed a band, but when he felt it was taking too long to turn a profit, he decided he should turn his attention to aviation instead. During Lou Pearlman's first year as a student at Queens College, he wrote a business plan for a class project based on the idea of a helicopter taxi service in New York City. By the late 1970s, he planned to launch that exact business, but Lou couldn't get the childhood memory of blimps out of his mind. 
So blending these ideas together, Lou Perlman persuaded German businessman Theodor Wollenkemper to train him on blimps, spending time at Wollenkemper's facilities in West Germany to learn more about airships, how they were built, operated, and maintained. When Lou returned to the U.S. from his trip to West Germany, he formed Airship Enterprises Limited. He then proceeded under his new company to lease the use of a blimp to the company Jordash. The only snag was Lou didn't own a blimp yet. However, never one to be deterred, Lou negotiated that Jordash should prepay for the blimp lease. Then he used those funds to construct a blimp using his newly obtained German knowledge. As one might expect, the blimp promptly crashed upon flight. It had been designed with too much gold leaf foiling on the exterior, making the blimp too heavy in overall weight. It crashed after floating only a few hundred feet. The blimp cost maybe five figures to make. However, Lou had insured the blimp for millions. So despite Jordash and Airship Enterprises Limited suing each other after the disaster, seven years later, it was Lou Perlman who was awarded $2.5 million in damages thank you to this insurance policy. Here I'd like to offer a quote from a Vanity Fair article that I'll cover in more detail in the latter half of this podcast. In discussion of Lou Perlman's ability to sell people on an idea, the article said, quote, A big talker and a better listener, Lou Perlman drew people into his world by deducing their dreams and promising to deliver them. But his soft edges, cloaked in unyielding will and the purring persuasions of a televangelist, quote, you could point your finger in his face and hold a Bible in one hand and tell him your name, and he could tell you you were wrong and make you believe it, recalls Jay Morose, Perlman's publicist in later years. He went on to say he could make you believe anything, anything at all. Always the serial entrepreneur, Lou Perlman would start his next new company, Airship International. Accepting that building blimps was harder than anticipated, Lou took the next company, Airship International Public, to raise the $3 million needed to actually buy a functioning blimp. To help raise money with investors, Lou Perlman stated he was partnering with Theodore Volnkemper. For the record, this was a lie. Lou did obtain some clients through this company, including McDonald's, MetLife, and SeaWorld, leasing blimps for advertising. However, Lou would have business failure again in his life when he had three different blimps crash along with losing a major client. His stock price plummeted from a high of $6 a share to the price of $0.03 a share. Airship International was no more. They were bust. However, while Lou had his air flight business, he also had private jets that could be leased. He claimed while Airship International was in business, his planes had flown Paul McCartney, Madonna, the Rolling Stones, and, more importantly, New Kids on the Block. And that band in particular would get Lou thinking. Considering his next opportunity to hit it big after his moderate success thus far, Lou Perlman couldn't quit thinking about that new band that was on the top of the charts and was raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. So much money that they were able to lease his planes for millions despite only being young teenagers. 
Lou didn't have the singing, dancing, or looks to be in a band, but he thought, why couldn't I create a successful boy band like the New Kids on the Block? Now, for my listeners that might be too young to remember, New Kids on the Block were a true phenomenon, so much so that even today, almost 30 years later, there are thousands of fans, mostly female, that pay thousands of dollars each year to go on cruise ships with the new kids on the block to mingle and watch them perform. I'm serious. Look it up. I have a friend that goes on the cruise each year. I mean, it looks like a lot of fun if you're into cruises and 30-year-old boy band music. Step by step, ooh, baby. Yep, I owned their album. And I played it enough times to still remember every word and the tonality to their songs somewhat to my embarrassment. I had a huge metal pen with their faces printed on it on my school backpack, and they were on my lunchbox. I also remember my best friend Jennifer doing the Weird Al Yankovic parody version of New Kids on the Block song, You Got It, The Right Stuff. The parody title by Al was You Got It, The White Stuff, and uh, the lyrics were about Oreo stuffing. Jennifer hip-hop danced and lip-synced to it while handing out Oreos to the class during a talent competition, which was a total boss-bitch move in the 90s, honestly. Those were simpler times. I digress. Lou Perlman saw the new kids on the block model and their financial success and thought, hey, I could do that. Not like dance or sing, but I could assemble a boy band, promote them, and take the profits. So. Lou swiftly created a new company, his at least third for those keeping track. This company was called Continental Records. The first band that the record label would create would be called The Backstreet Boys. The name came from Lou. He named the group after Orlando, Florida's Backstreet Market, an outdoor flea market that was a popular teen hangout. Lou Perlman created a talent search across America to find five unknown vocal and dance performers, hand-selected by Lou. He placed ads in papers across the country. Note, Americans still read papers back then. The ad read as follows. Quote, teen male vocalist. Producer seeks male teen singers that move well between 16 to 19 years of age, wanted for, quote, new kids, quote, type singing dancing group. Send photo and bio of any kind. Lou Perlman would hire Johnny Wright, a former New Kids on the Block manager, as well as Johnny's wife Donna, to teach Lou some of the tricks of the trade. Lou would have the boys come into his airline hangar in Florida to perform. The boys that won the competition were named A.J. McLean, Howie Durow, Nick Carter, Kevin Richardson, and Brian Luttrell. Lou would provide choreographers, vocal lessons, tutoring, food. In addition to paying for all of these things for the boys, Lou also was a rotund man, and given the father-like figure he was playing, his nickname at the time became Big Papa, which Lou owned proudly. Big Papa Lou was no pushover, though. He made the boys work long hours, practicing nonstop. He was creating his vision of a money-making boy band, and Lou gave the illusion to the boys and his co-workers that he was a billionaire. That's how he could back all of the different investments for this boy band. Spoiler alert, that was a lie. The Backstreet Boys' first album was self-titled and released in 1996. 
The album obtained success in Europe, especially in Germany, but the band had not yet caught on in the United States. This would change with their next album, Backstreet's Back, released in 1997. This album would peak at number four on the U.S. album chart and sell more than 28 million copies worldwide. To his credit, Lou Pearlman was extremely successful in creating his first boy band in partnership with Jive Records. The Backstreet Boys became the best-selling boy band of all time, with record sales of over 130 million, hitting gold, platinum, and diamond in 45 different countries. But their real stardom would occur when album three dropped. The Backstreet Boys' third album, Millennium, would be recording during a time of angst in the group. Brian Luttrell had brought a lawsuit against Lou Pearlman and Transcontinental that same year, claiming that Lou had not been truthful about the group's earnings. It was noted that from 1993 to 1997, Lou Pearlman and Transcontinental took in about $10 million in revenue, while the band only got $300,000 to share amongst the six of them. Now here, if you were paying attention, you might say, wait, there's five members of the Backstreet Boys. Ah, but see, that's not the case here. Lou Pearlman, in the contract that the Backstreet Boys members signed, stated that Lou was the sixth member of the band, meaning he in particular would receive a share of the band's earnings as a member of the band on top of all of the other money that he was making from being their producer and manager. Lou would also quite creepily try to get into videos. If you watch one of the first Backstreet Boy videos for the song titled We've Got It Going On, you can see Lou Pearlman featured in the video around the three-minute mark. In 1999, three more members of the band Backstreet Boys, McLean, Richardson, and Durow, joined the lawsuit with Luttrell. Ultimately, the lawsuit ended in a number of settlements to the band members. It was also in 1999 that the Backstreet Boys would break away from Lou Pearlman and Transcontinental. What the Backstreet Boys didn't know was during their last few years working with Lou, he would already be creating his second boy band and his third and his fourth. The second band to be called NSYNC. This band would be formed by then-unknown Justin Timberlake, J.C. Chazé, Chris Kirkpatrick, Joey Fatone, and Lance Bass. Their self-titled album was released in 1997 with the hit single, I Want You Back. And of course, there was a natural rivalry between the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and that was intentionally created by Lou. However, by the second NSYNC album creation, the Lou Pearlman model went ahead and progressed to the lawsuit piece. The NSYNC boys were hip to what Lou had pulled on the Backstreet Boys, and they began to look closer at their own contracts and calculating revenues versus the cut each band member received. In 1999, NSYNC entered into a legal battle with Lou Pearlman. The group claimed that Lou performed illicit business practices. NSYNC sued Lou and his record company, Transcontinental, for defrauding NSYNC of more than 50% of their earnings. Per the contract, Lou Pearlman was to only receive one-sixth of the earnings as their sixth member again. Yes, he kept that shtick up. This guy really gives you the creeps, huh? Just wait, it gets much worse later. NSYNC threatened to leave Lou 
for Jive Records. This prompted Lou and RCA to counter Sue and Sync for $150 million and the use of the group's name. Ultimately, the parties would reach a settlement out of court and NSYNC would go on to sign with Jive. When Justin Timberlake was quoted later about this situation, he said it was like working for an evil Svengali. In the year 2000, which still sounds mystical to me being a baby of the 1980s, NSYNC would release their second album titled No Strings Attached. Their first single was titled Bye Bye Bye. While the lyrics of this hit single seem to describe the end of a relationship, it was reported to actually reference the group's separation from their previous manager, Lou Pearlman, and the record label, RCA Records. This was also exemplified by the album's title, No Strings Attached, and the accompanying video, which featured NSYNC band members being controlled by marionette strings by an evil puppet master until finally freed. Bet you didn't realize how much symbolism was in that catchy little cheesy pop tune and video, huh? The song Bye 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 received a Grammy nomination in 2001 for Record of the Year, but lost to U2's Beautiful Day. And the album No Strings Attached would sell 2.42 million records in its first week, and by the end of 2000, it had sold over 9.9 million copies globally. NSYNC was another certified success in Lou Pearlman's pocket. Lou Pearlman was quickly becoming a media mogul type based on his reputation of creating highly profitable boy bands. Lou Pearlman would then go on to form O-Town through an ABC MTV reality television series titled Making the Band. Lou also formed LFO, Take 5, Natural, and US 5. He formed one girl group called Innocence, which featured a then-unknown Britney Spears in the very beginning as a short-term member until she bailed because she wanted to go solo. He was that close. Lou also expanded to having individual artists on his transatlantic label, including Aaron Carter, Jordan Knight, Smiles, and South Star and C-Note. Lou Pearlman had an eye for talent and a penchant for fraud. Literally all of the music acts that Lou Pearlman worked with sued him in federal court for misrepresentation and fraud. And all cases that have been brought have either been won by those bringing forth the suit or were settled out of court, which gives strong legitimacy to the complainants and shows a clear pattern of fraud on Mr. Pearlman's part. But wait, there's more. In 2002... Lou Pearlman purchased an internet-based talent company, then called Options Talent Group. This entity would go through a variety of names while Lou used it essentially as a photo mill scam. Now, a photo mill scam feeds off of naive young talent trying to find their big break. There's usually a vague ad in a paper or online that says, it's a model casting shoot. This is your opportunity. All sizes and types are welcome. Show up. It could lead to an agent signing you. I'm sure you've never heard those radio ads. The applicants are not allowed to submit their own portfolios. They are required to pay for the photographer on site to shoot their modeling photos to be entered into the talent agency for opportunities. They're heavily pressured to buy large photo packages based on false numbers of photos needed to send to agents that will never call. It's a fast way to part young, hopeful people from their money with no promise of anything to occur after obtaining the expensive photos. 
So anyway, that's what Lou was doing for his current disgusting hustle. Scamming more young people out of money for his greedy desires. Complaints were filed with the Better Business Bureau. The BBB found the company of a million names concerning, advising citizens to beware citing a pattern of complaints concerning misrepresentation in the selling practices. The New York State Consumer Protection Board issued an alert naming it the largest example they had found of a photo mill scam. You gotta say one thing for Lou, he knows how to scale. San Francisco's labor commissioner declared the company, which was called Options, TCT, WSN, and a whole bunch of other names, in violation of California law, and several state agencies were reported to be investigating the company. However, soon, none of it would matter, as the company would file bankruptcy, and Lou was probably planning to move on to his next con, but his luck had ran out at this point. In 2006, investigators discovered Lou Perlman had been running a Ponzi scheme for two decades, defrauding investors of over more than $300 million. Lou, with his affable nature and somewhat positive business reputation, would continually convince investors to invest in two of his companies. And frankly, I've had to practice saying the names of these companies because they're so bloody long. The first one was Transcontinental Airlines Travel Services Incorporated, and the second company was Transcontinental Airlines Incorporated. The only problem was neither one of these companies actually existed in real life. They just existed on paper. So how was this Ponzi scheme discovered? An investor by the name of Julian Bencher owned about 7% of the Transcontinental Airlines Incorporated stock for over eight years. He was divesting some of his old investments when he noticed he wasn't receiving dividends on his Transcontinental Airlines stock. Perplexed, he called Lou Perlman to complain. Lou blamed German businessman Theodor von Kemper, saying it was the owner that was refusing to pay out the dividends. What Lou didn't know was Theodore was a friend of Julian's. When Julian Bencher called Theodore von Kemper and asked about the missing dividends, this is how the conversation went. This is from the Vanity Fair article. Von Kemper said, what are you talking about? I said, Transcontinental Airlines. Von Kemper said, what's Transcontinental Airlines got to do with me? Julian said, you own it. You own 82% of it, according to Lou. And then Von Kemper started laughing. Julian said, Transconair, 49 airplanes. Von Kemper said, I have planes, but not this Transconair, Julian. This has nothing to do with me. Julian said, I went cold inside. Everything I had believed for eight years was a lie. I didn't know what to do. There was no Transcontinental Airlines. Julian would be one of many investors to take their suspicions to the authorities around what was called the Employee Investment Savings Account. This would lead the state of Florida's Office of Financial Regulation to begin examining TransCon's EISA program in the fall of 2006. When Lou heard of this investigation, he began rapidly liquidating his assets, including multiple Rolls Royces and other automobiles. He also began laying off people still employed by Transcontinental, the people that were creating his fraudulent paperwork for the most part. The FBI would raid Lou Perlman's mansion in mid-February 2007, hauling out computers and boxes of documents. 
the FBI would discover $317 million in missing money that was supposed to be in Transcontinental's EISA accounts, in addition to $156 million in vanished bank loans. Guess we know how Big Papa paid for all his boy bands now. It would be found that Lou Perlman had used falsified FDIC, AIG, and Lloyds of London documents to win investors' confidence in his program titled Employee Investment Savings Account, and he used fake financial statements created by the fictitious accounting firm Cohen & Siegel to secure bank loans. In February of 2007, Florida regulators announced that Perlman's transcontinental savings program was indeed a massive fraud, and the state took possession of the company. Most of the at least $95 million, which was collected from investors, was gone. Orange County Circuit Judge Rene Roche ordered Perlman and two of his associates, Robert Fischetti and Michael Crudell, to bring back to the United States any assets taken abroad which were derived from illegal transactions. In March 2007, Lou Perlman and all of his remaining companies were forced into bankruptcy. It was at this time that Lou decided to uh, make a run from the law. Guests owning planes can come in handy when you're a criminal. Lou was reportedly seen in Israel, Russia, Belarus, Spain, Panama, Brazil, and Germany during his abscondment period. Lou would be arrested in Indonesia on June 14, 2007, after being spotted by a tourist couple from Germany. Lou Perlman was then indicted by a federal grand jury on June 27, 2007. He was charged with three counts of bank fraud, one count of mail fraud, and one count of wire fraud. On May 21, 2008, Sharp sentenced Perlman to 25 years in prison on charges of conspiracy, money laundering, and making false statements during a bankruptcy proceeding. Perlman could reduce his prison time by one month for every million dollars he helped a bankruptcy trustee recover. And while stealing money from young men in addition to investors through illegitimate business practices is pretty awful, unfortunately, this tale is about to get really, really dark. So I'd like to pause here for a moment and offer a trigger warning. For anyone that would like to avoid any conversation of alleged child abuse, I would suggest you skip forward by at least five minutes just to avoid the next section of discussion around Lou Perlman. Now, I will admit, I intentionally try to avoid stories that include any type of sexual abuse because I personally find it very hard to deal with. However, as I've gotten older and reflected upon movements that have meant a lot to me, such as the Me Too movement, I know that abusers have gotten away with their ludicrously predatory behavior in large part because we as caring humans are loath to want to talk about such awful things. My opinion in reflecting upon this is that we need to face the ugly. It will never change or stop if we don't. We need to be able to understand and identify the signs of this behavior to help us better protect others from it. So I apologize for feeling compelled to briefly discuss this, and I thank you for sticking with me. I will not describe any alleged acts, but rather the high-level allegations. I leave it to you on what you feel comfortable sharing with your loved ones to help protect them from predators. All right, deep breath. Here we go. 
The details I share here come primarily from a very well-researched and written Vanity Fair article titled Mad About the Boys from November 2007, as reported by Ryan Burrow. The article is available to read free online if you'd like to know more. The Vanity Fair article was considered the first about this dark side of Lou Pearlman. This is the lead into the article, quote, Until he fled the country in January, accused of embezzling more than $300 million, Lou Pearlman was famous as the impresario behind the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Turns out his investors weren't the only victims, colleagues reveal. Pearlman's passion for boy bands was also a passion for boys. The article goes on to describe alleged situations in which Lou would show pornographic movies and jump naked into young boys' beds in the morning to wrestle and play. It then goes on to describe situations in which young men were seen leaving Lou's bedroom at night. The full truth of what happened during these dark days is unclear based on who you want to listen to. I personally choose to listen to and believe those that say they are victims. Some of the boy band members have outright denied anything sexually improper ever occurred. Some members vehemently defend the allegations and give thorough descriptions of the abuse patterns. Those that allege abuse state that it was widespread. They claim that Lou Pearlman used his position of power to coerce employees into uncomfortable sexual agreements to obtain success, which, if true, is absolutely revolting and, frankly, quite believable. One incident recapped in the article centers around young Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys when he was 17 in 1997. From the Vanity Fair article, A.J. McLean's mother, Denise McLean, says of the incident, quote, My son did say something about the fact that Nick had been uncomfortable staying at Lou Perlman's house. For a while, Nick loved going over to Lou's house. But then all of a sudden, it appeared there was a flip at some point. Then we heard from the Carter camp that there was some kind of inappropriate behavior. It was just odd. I can just say that there were odd events that took place. Neither Nick Carter nor his parents, Robert and Jane Carter, will address what, if anything, happened. But at least two of the other mothers of the Pearlman band members assert Jane Carter termed Lou Pearlman a quote-unquote sexual predator. Phoenix Stone says he discussed the matter with both Nick and his mother. With Nick, I gotta tell you, there was not something Nick was comfortable talking about, says Stone. What happened? Well, I just think that he finally, you know... Lou was definitely inappropriate with him, and he just, he felt he didn't want anything to do with that anymore. There was a big blow-up at that point, and from what Jane says, yeah, there was a blow-up and they confronted him. In a telephone interview, Jane Carter stopped just short of acknowledging Lou Pearlman made improper overtures to her son. This is her quote. Certain things happened, she told Vanity Fair, and it almost destroyed our family. I tried to warn everyone. I tried to warn all the mothers. Told that this article would detail allegations that Pearlman made overtures to other young men, Jane Carter replied, If you're doing that and exposing that, I give you a big flag. I tried to expose him for what he was years ago. I hope you expose him, because the financial scandal is the least of his injustices. When the Vanity Fair reporter asked Jane why she wouldn't discuss it further, Jane Carter says she doesn't want to jeopardize her relationship with Nick. Quote, I can't say anything more, she says. These children are fearful, and they want to go on with their careers. End quote. 
this was not the only story or allegation to be raised. According to the Vanity Fair article, Tim Christopher, who joined Lou Pearlman's third boy band, Take Five, at the age of 13, remembers one sleepover when he and another boy were dozing. Lou Pearlman appeared at the foot of their bed, clad only in a towel. According to Christopher, Lou performed a swan dive into the bed, wrestling with the boys, at which point his towel came off. Christopher said, quote, We were like, oh, Lou, that's gross. What did I know? I was 13. Tim Christopher would also allege Lou would occasionally answer the door naked, claiming he had just got out of the shower. And another time, he said Lou showed him security camera footage of his girl group, Innocence, sunbathing topless. On yet another occasion, Christopher alleges Lou Pearlman invited all five band members of Take Five to watch the movie Star Wars in his viewing room. But at one point, Star Wars switched off and a pornographic movie started showing instead. Being young boys at the time, they thought it was hilarious and they cheered. As an adult, Tim now knows this is predatory sexual normalization behavior, often called grooming. And it is inappropriate for any adult and or someone of power to ever do this with minors. A 20-year-old personal assistant, Steve Mooney, described inappropriate touching from Lou, as did the lead singer of LFO, Rich Cronin. They both shared stories of Lou claiming to feel their aura being off and proceeding to massage them. They said Lou would claim to be able to strengthen their aura so they would be irresistible to others. Man, I'm so creeped out right now. I can't even imagine being in the same room with this man in this awful situation. Those that allege these acts occur say they didn't say anything at the time because Big Papa Lou told them specifically not to say anything, especially to their parents. They had a good time with Lou, and they didn't understand how he was grooming them until they were much older. And often is the case with those that experience sexual abuse, especially as children. It's still such a taboo topic and so embarrassing that even if it did happen, many will never talk about it. To be clear, these are all allegations that have not been proven in a court of law. On this podcast, we choose to believe the victims that speak out. But it should be acknowledged that Lou Pearlman was never taken to court or found guilty of any of these abuse allegations described. So, where is Lou Pearlman today? In 2008, Lou began his prison sentence with a projected release date of March 24, 2029. But Lou suffered a stroke in 2010 while incarcerated. Years after the stroke, he would then be diagnosed with an infection of the heart valve. He had surgery to replace the heart valve a few weeks before his death, but it wasn't enough. Lou Perlman would die at the Federal Correction Institute in Miami, Florida, on August 19, 2016, from cardiac arrest at 62 years old. Manufactured boy bands were not a new idea. They'd been around forever. Some had strong success. Many didn't. You had the Monkees in 1966. This group was conceived in 1965 by television producers Bob Raffleson and Bert Schneider. The band was specifically created to adjoin a situation comedy series, also known as the Monkees. The band was formed of four American actor musicians, and as is rather usual for boy bands, other people wrote their songs and their music. The boys in the band would play the instruments, sing, and act in the show. One of the members of the band, Mickey Dolenz, described the Monkees as 
a TV show about an imaginary band that wanted to be the Beatles that was never successful, end quote. Then there was the Puerto Rican boy band group Menudo. The word menudo is a Spanish synonym for little, and in Puerto Rican Spanish, it means loose change. This boy band was formed in 1977 by producer Eduardo Diaz, and it would become one of the most successful Latin boy bands in history. They had multiple albums and produced well-known stars Ricky Martin and Draco Rosa. And also in the 1980s and 1990s, there was Millie Vanilli. Now, when I said that band name, some of you probably laughed. For those of you that didn't laugh, let me explain the joke. Millie Vanilli was a German-French R&B duo from Munich, Germany. The group was founded by Frank Farian in 1988. He recruited two members by the name of Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus. When Millie Vanilli launched their debut album and single, Girl, you know it's true. Ooh, 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 I love you. In the United States, it was an immediate hit. So much so, it won the Grammy Award for the Best New Artist on February 21st, 1990. Okay, so where's the joke? Well, the joke is, after having sold millions of records and winning a Grammy, it was discovered that the two band members did not sing any of the vocals in any of the music releases. They were purely the face of the band. The public was absolutely outraged. These guys had been lip-syncing and taking millions of dollars from adoring fans while other people were writing and performing the music. They ended up giving back their Grammy. You would consider them successful? So, Lou Pearlman's model wasn't new. Just scaled for the 1990s and the 2000s. And also, unfortunately, those in entertainment taking advantage of their position of power to manipulate young stars into contracts that benefit everyone but them is certainly nothing new, nor is the use of power to coerce the unwilling into unspeakable acts for opportunities or to avoid being blacklisted. We should all clearly know this happens at this point based on the many, many, many examples of predators that have been brought to light, especially in Hollywood. That is why the guardians and people surrounding those seeking fame need to stay vigilant in protecting them. This should include having lawyers, accountants, and managers, and at least one more set of lawyers, accountants, and managers to check the first set if you do obtain fame. It's really easy for people to take advantage of folks that have never been in this industry before. In reflecting upon this story, it saddens me to think of all of the lives that Lou Pearlman harmed in the pursuit of getting rich quickly. He was clearly an intelligent and business-savvy man when he wanted to be. What he lacked was an empathy for others and the patience to earn his own keep over time. Lou was only interested in quickly gratifying one individual in his life, and that was himself. And he didn't care at what cost to others. If Lou Perlman would have created the boy bands using legitimate means, he could have possibly had a long and successful career. Instead, he died poor, sick, and alone in jail. A disgrace. What a shame. Stay diligent, dear listeners, and always remember the golden rule. 
If it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Controversial Figures. Just a reminder to please like, subscribe, and leave a rating and comment for Controversial Figures in your favorite podcast app. It really helps us be found by others. We have a Twitter page at Figures Podcast, so if you'd like to follow us or give us recommendations of controversial figures you'd like to hear, we love interacting with our fans. This podcast is an independent podcast created by Tammy Hawkins. It's funded by those that donate. You're my producers, so please join Patreon and give what you can. Once I hit 50 Patreon subscribers, I'll send out swag to all regular donators, and I'll give shout-outs during the show to anyone that's donated along the way. Research references are available in the show notes, as are musical references. I hope everyone's staying well out there. Please remember to be kind to each other and be kind to yourself. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. And be well. Be well.